We're starting a new series um, this weekend, and so I'll just warn you before this series even gets started is that uh, it's, since we're starting the series, there's going to be an obscene amount of information that's going to be given. <laughs> In fact, the uh, series is called Ruth, and we're going to work through the book of Ruth. Uh, we're going to go through the whole book this morning, just to let you know. It's on your notes. That's what I mean by a lot of information is given. I think that's on point two. We'll go through the whole book. And then point three, we're going to spend about seven weeks on this series, and then you have the outline of where we're going for seven weeks. So that's point three um, that, is, that is there um, in your notes. So you will be getting a lot of information, but as you get a lot of information, don't worry, we'll be unfolding all the information that you'll be getting this morning for the next seven weeks. Just repeat it all, but unfold it um, even in more depth and uh, in more more rich. So as we're looking at all this information, uh, just to see at the top of your notes, I just want to really give one point um, that uh, you can think about and leave home with. How are Christians supposed to live in a dark world? That's a point that I'm going to try to push just for the bottom of uh, point three, to go home with. How is a Christian supposed to live um, in a dark world? And then as we're working through the book of Ruth, uh, yes, that one will consistently be brought up. Now, we just got through the book of Judges. If this is your first time here this morning, we just got through the book of Judges. I believe that we spent like 14 sermons on it, so started in September and went through the book of Judges. You're not going to understand the intensity of the book of Ruth, the beauty of the book of Ruth, or even how Ruth fits into God's dynamic plan until you understand Judges. And once you understand Judges, you'll then be able to what? Understand Ruth. These two books go completely and entirely together, and I don't even think it's possible to preach one and literally not the other, and that's why we're going through this book of Ruth. So if you look in your notes, you will say, well, we're going to talk about Judges. You know what? We're going to talk about Judges every week. You're probably going to get the same statement that I've been given every week in regards to the book of Judges. What was the theme of Judges? We'll just put it here. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Judges is a period of 300 years. In the process of being a period of 300 years, it was the darkest time for Israel. The darkest time for the nation of Israel. Evil galore. People were at unrest People were fighting against each other. It was, just, it was just an absolutely mess that's taken place. And the reason why is because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, we kind of know this, and don't write down any notes, but if you want to destroy your marriage, I'll tell you how to do it. Do what is right in your own eyes and don't consider the next person. <laughs> that's it. And then have that, your mate, do the same thing. Do what's right in their eyes and don't consider this next person. You're just going to blow your marriage up. You know, that, that's, the way to, that's the way to do it. A good way to blow a country up, too, is to have everybody in the entire country to do what's right in their own eyes. It's a good way to blow a country up. Not what's right in anybody else's eyes, not what's right in God's eyes. Just do literally what you want, when you want, how you want, where you want. It carries a weight and it carries a power that literally destroys. And the book of Judges is, is making this statement that the world is a mess when everybody does it. So what does God do? Through the book of Judges, he sends deliverers. And as he sends these deliverers, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to pull them out of their mire and get them to think to follow God rather than follow themselves is what they're doing. So these judges come, but who are these judges? Let's just review really fast. Othniel, he was a good judge. The first judge was a phenomenal judge. And you can almost say, this is a model judge. The world's going to change because people are going to change because he's a good judge. Next one, Ehud, he was a screaming, uh, a scheming assassin. Um, yeah, he did <laughs> change some things, but just think of his personality, think of his character. Shamgar was a strong, illegitimate farmer. 
meaning that I think it was half Canaanite. He wasn't even half Israelite. It was an ancestral marriage that even brought him there, and as he's judging the people. Deborah is the only female judge, and do you know what? She's a courageous woman, an awesome judge. And then we see light take place as a result of her being a judge. Barak was a reluctant military commander. Deborah practically ran Barak to try to get there, but, I mean, Barak was not impressive. Gideon had an inconsistent faith. I loved preaching the first story of Gideon. I mean, it's the most awesome faith in the entire world. But then the next week we preached the last story of Gideon. And what took place? The first story, he had so much faith that he took 300 people, charged into battle, and God did all the victory. But you get to the end of his life, what did he do? Who's God? Maybe it's me. He named his child Abimelech. And what does the word Abimelech mean? It means my father is God. Gideon named that child, my father is God. Here he is thinking, I'm God. Pulls him back into evil worship. So then you have uh, idol worship. Then you have Abimelech. He's just a picture of corruption, just an absolute mess. Jer, he's a worldly man. Jephthah, a man of division and death. Remember him? He split a church. And as a result of splitting the church, 42,000 congregants died. I mean, that's just, just what took place. Yeah, he did good at the beginning of his life, but then through it, he's like, there's division, and all of a sudden, he went to war with the division, and a lot of God's people died. There's a mess. Abnon, he owned a donkey. It's like, why'd you put that there? Because that's all it says about Abnon. And remember, these guys are filled with the Spirit. These guys are the ones that are going to change the world for God. And the only thing we know about Abnon is he owned a donkey. It doesn't, it doesn't explain anything else. What does that mean? That means he probably did what was right in his own eyes, even though he was a judge. And he'd rather have a donkey than God's mission. So he just took a donkey instead because a donkey says, you're what? Rich. So Abnon owned a donkey. Samson is bitter. He was angry. And he's a sex addict. Just in a sense that he just did what was right in his own eyes, even though he was the strongest man in the world. And the book of Judges just kind of ends with this sorrow and just ends instantly. Here's the verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. <laughs> and it's all done. Just to literally say, the author said, it was a mess. <laughs> it was an absolute disaster. So now we're going to come to the book of Ruth, which is the next book. What's the theme in the book of Ruth? Uh, I was trying to think what I could put down, so I'll just put down this. The opposite of what everybody does in their own The opposite of everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's just... The opposite of what everyone does right in their own eyes. We're going to start with the book of Ruth by reading the first five verses, and then we'll work through it. And I want you to just keep an eye as we're working through this book. What do you think of the eye of sacrifice? The eye of what people are thinking in the process of making decisions in life. And also the, keep an eye on, on what, where their focus is at. And is there focus here or is there focus elsewhere? Verse 1, chapter 1. In those days when the judges ruled, that right there is a statement. Judges was the darkest time in Israel. Ruth is not a separate book. Judges didn't happen and then Ruth started. That's not, the ta- that's not what took place. Judges is a story that is picked up and put right in the center. Or Ruth is a story that picked up and put right in the center of the book of Judges. During the time when the judges ruled, this story of Ruth took place. There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. 
and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Abimelech. Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons was Malon and Chilion. They are Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other one was Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. What we do is you see lots of suffering that takes place in this passage. Four main points of suffering. First one, the day when the judges ruled. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was an ugly time to live, and the story of Ruth is happening right here. The next one is that there was famine in the land, a famine that was so severe that I believe that Elimelech and also Naomi believed that they would literally starve to death unless they got out of the land. So what did they do? They moved to Moabite country, a different God, a different people, different nationality. They were Israelites, and they moved out of Israel into Moab as a result of a famine that took place. And then we see that Elimelech died. Naomi's husband ended up dying. And as we continue to read down for the third part of the suffering, that Ruth and Orpah's husbands died as well. So Naomi lost her husband, and then Naomi lost both of her sons. It's just Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. The fourth part of this suffering that has taken place if you look at the passage, they, um, Orpah and Ruth had husbands for 10 years, and they never had children. Now, we know how it feels when we don't have children in this world that we live in right now. It's, it's devastating. But back then, if you did not have children, it's actually life-threatening. It's life-threatening. The reason why it's life-threatening is because if you have children, you're going to have economic success. That's just kind of how it is. What I mean by that is you have kids, and as the kids grow up, the kids go to work. And as they go to work, what's taking place? You can get a bigger house. You can have more status in the world. The children were working, and then all of a sudden the children turn adults. And when they become adults, they're not necessarily leaving their home. No, they're staying with mom and dad, and then having more kids is taking place. So what's taking place? You get a bigger house. It's, it's a sense of prosperity. So if you don't have children, you're, economically you're going to be a mess. If you do have children, economically, you could be thriving during this time. And then during this time, um, they wanted sons. Um, I know that's kind of probably not something I should say in this world that we live in today, but I'll say it again. They wanted sons. And you could be thinking, well, you know what happened? The Bible is sexist. I knew the Bible was going to be sexist. Well, let me try to explain a little bit why they wanted sons. And I'll just do it with an example of, of, of my life. I have I have four different cows, and uh, in my cows, what I do is I give um, a bull in there, and they get pregnant every year, and then I have cow- calves every single year. And uh, as these calves are born, I have two daughters, and my daughters and I, all the way through life, would argue about one thing, what we're going to have. I would be on the side that I want a boy, I want a boy, I want a boy. They would go, Dad, we want a girl, we want a girl, we want a girl, we want a girl. I said, no, you guys don't understand, we want a boy. They would look at me and say, Dad, you don't understand, we want a girl. And this is the reason why they wanted a girl. Girls are sweet. You can walk right up to a calf, not a problem. You walk right up to a cow. We even had a cow you could just milk, literally, right out in the field. The girls are soft, the girls are sweet, the girls are beautiful. 
And I mean, just in a sense that, Dad, have you ever seen what a bull looks like? He's got a big old fat neck. He's as ugly. He's slobbering. We don't want that on our property. The girls, they're safe for our girls. So they're like, yeah, we want a girl. What are cows all over? What's well, girls? And I'm like, all right, girls. The reason why I want a boy cow, which would be a bull taken into a steer, don't need to give an explanation, but a boy cow, is because I need a big rump roast. That's it. I want a large, large rump roast. Every year, we either sell or we butcher and then sell. As a res- and we eat some as well. And I like the rump roast to eat, but the rump roast is really important. And the size of the rump roast is important because if we don't have a big rump roast, we're going to go broke. Now, if you have a small rump roast, which always comes in the female, then, then you do struggle economically. It's just, it's just the way it is. And so I don't want a small, petite, beautiful cow that you could look at and pet. I want to make money so I can impress your mom and give her justification why we have cows in the first place because she hates them. And, and she says, the big girls would always say, well, Dad, you never make money on them anyway. I said, I know, I'm not trying to make money, I'm trying not to lose money. If I tell her that I broke even, that is a justifying factor. But if I tell her we're paying for the cows that she does not like, then she's going to tell me to get rid of them. Back in those days, it was the days where minds were not making a living. The days where hearts were not making a living. The days where people weren't working on the computer. Back in those days, it's when backs were making a living. It was when strong hands and strong arms were making a living. And what they wanted, they wanted sons because have more sons, it would be more prosperous because they're going to fields where man's fields are driven, where men just dominated over these fields because of the labor that is being done, where the income comes in, and it is a rough, ugly world in those, those fields. The other things that sons brought is that sons brought safety. If you had sons in your house, nobody was going to break into your house and steal anything. In fact, what sons did is they, they repelled evil from the house. Girls, daughters, they actually brought evil in. Everybody's like, oh, they got daughters. You know, we're, we're going to be visiting their place. The sons, just back in those days, they repelled, they repelled evil. The other thing that sons did is they protected even a country. I mean, the sons are the ones that went to war. The men are the ones that went to war. And uh, the reason why the men are the ones that went to war is because they're going to get slaughtered. Hand-to-hand combat, sword-to-sword, shield-to-shield. It's an ugly, bloody mess, and war is consistently happening. And the men aren't even surviving, and the ladies wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. Why? Because if they went into the middle of it, they would just be chopped liver, fast, because of the aggression that was taking place back in these Bible days. The other reason why they, they wanted sons is because it was a retirement plan. You know, here we have, you know, you invest money, you get retirement in the future. That's not the way it took place there. What happens if you have kids, they are your retirement plan. So as soon as you're not able to work in the field, as soon as you're not able to bring anything home, not able to bring any money home at all, and you're, you're older, your kids still work, and your kids still provide for you. What takes place in the Bible is you see consistently the Bible speaking about widows 
Widows are people that died young. And the reason why they died young is because they weren't, they weren't fed. That's why the Bible consistently says, take care of the widows because it's a life and death situation in the world that they were living in during those times. So here they were. They didn't have sons. They didn't have their husbands. And Naomi was going to make a decision. What do we do? Do we barely survive here in Moab? Or do I go back to my people, Israel, and try to survive there? Because nobody's going to have mercy on Naomi and Moab. They're not. Why? Because she's an Israelite. You know, they might like the daughters, but they don't have mercy on Naomi. And she's a widow. And she's an older widow. She has to go back to Israel because that's the only way she'll be able to survive just a little bit longer. But when these family knots, these families, when they're tied together, they're committed to each other. So if Naomi leaves, then her daughter-in-law's leave with her. Orpah and Ruth will go with her. It's just kind of a natural thing that we are a family unit, and where we go, we do it together. So Naomi told the ladies, we're going, the two daughter-in-laws, we're going, we're going to go back to Israel, back to Judah. So it's about a 50-mile walk back to Judah. And as they're walking, and I don't know where they were, but I think they were walking for some time, you can almost see Naomi's mind moving. I'm a widow. My life expectancy just went down a long ways. My hands will bleed. My back will be broken. I will be completely independent on everybody else who is around me. I will be going into a field, a man-driven field, that where who knows what's going to take place. And she's thinking about the life that she is literally walking into, but she has no choice as she's walking into it. But then she thinks about something else. Two daughter-in-laws behind her. Ruth and Orpah are walking with her into this life of practical death. And as she's thinking about what they're going through, she stops right on the trail. And do you know what she does? She does not do what is right in her own eyes. She looks at them and says, go back, go home. And if you look at the passage, there's like two waves of tears that take place. Ruth and Orpah don't both, they don't want to go home. They're, they're a family unit. You're splitting the family unit. They want to take care of Naomi, but they know they can't take care of Naomi because they're going in a man-driven world. And the other thing is that they are Moabite ladies, so they're going into a world that's going to cause aggressive racism against them. They're going into the world that they will never have a husband because of the race and their nationality, being a Moabite compared to in Israel. They're going into the world where they'll never have hope. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. And they both, all three of them knew it. And all three of them knew it. As you can see, the conversations take place. Naomi is saying, go Go, go. Orpah said, you're right, Naomi. The wise thing for me to do is to go back. And, and she turned around and she went back. But Naomi, Ruth wasn't leaving. She kept clinging on, hanging on to Naomi. and says, I'm not going. And you know what? She couldn't even get Ruth not connected to her anymore. And then you hear the words that when Naomi is trying to push Ruth away and saying, go back to your country, you hear the words, Naomi, where you go, I go. Your people is my people. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your God is my God. Wherever you die, I will die with you. 
You looked right at me in the face, and as you look right at me in the face, you're not going to do what's right in your own eyes. And by golly, I'm not going to do what's right in my eyes either. And we're just going to go, and we're going to die together. It wasn't going to stop her. They turned around, and then they walked to Judah. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. They returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears, and grain after him. In those sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went to glean in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field where belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. A couple things I want to notice. The first thing, at the beginning of the barley harvest, that's the reason why Naomi was going to the first place, because it was, time, it was time to reap the fields. It was time to work on the fields. It was time to bring the harvest in. It was a harvest time. And so at the beginning of the barley harvest, what takes place? Everybody goes harvest their fields. That means the fields are completely crowded with Who? With men, exactly right. They're crowded with men because men are the ones that are harvesting the fields. They're the ones that are working inside the fields. The next thing I want to notice is that Ruth said, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain. What's she talking about? Well, see what God did, and he did this back in the book of Leviticus. It would be Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 is God put a welfare system into the system of Israel. And this is the welfare system. When you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap your field right up as, it, as it's to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. This is God commanding all of his people to be sloppy. In other words, when you harvest your field, you can turn around and make sure everything's cleaned up the second time. Don't do that. When you harvest your field and you take a corner, there's going to be some grain and things left over. Don't back up and pick that grain up. Don't do that. What I want you to do is I want you to harvest it sloppy. Harvest it sloppy and let all this stuff fall on the ground. You know why? Because the poor need to be fed. The widows need to be fed. This is the welfare system that God put in place for Israel to say, we've got to drop something on the ground for those who literally have nothing. So that's what Ruth is doing. Remember, she's a Moabite going into Israel country into a, a field full of men. And what are these men doing? They're doing what is right in their own eyes because what? They're in the book of Judges. So who knows what's going to take place in this racial discrimination that she's literally walking into. But she has a little bit of hope. Naomi owns some land out there. And there's one man on that planet and all those people out there named Boaz. It's related to Abimelech, but they don't know Boaz. They don't know his personality. They don't know his character. They don't know anything about Boaz. But she's going to take in faith and walk out there and say, I'd love to run into him, but if I don't run into him, I guess I just have to survive anyway. She goes out there. She starts to work. Now, as she works, guess he notices her. Boaz. He notices her, but he doesn't know who she is, and he doesn't know who he is. So he starts asking his men, his workers, and says, you know, who's that girl? And they say, that's a Moabite woman. It's like, whoa, 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 a Moabite woman? And she's here? Do you know what kind of racial discrimination she's going to have? Do you know what kind of things that are going to happen to her? She's not going to survive out here. She'll only survive out here for weeks if she's lucky. 
He's going to be taken advantage of by all the men in the field. She's going to be taken advantage of by even just the knuckles of bringing her stuff, her, her grain back. But after this guy was telling her the story of why Naomi was here, he was clicking to Boaz as she's not doing anything for herself. She's doing nothing for herself. She could have gone back and she could have been married. She could have had kids and she could have lived in her own country. She's doing everything on this ground for one person. Do you know who it was? It's for Naomi. This girl's laying her life down, literally, for somebody else. And it hit Boaz deep into the heart. And Boaz, according to the passage, is a man of stature. And what does he do? He shows the stature. He shows the authority. Shows by shouting out some rules. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not glean in another field. This is a command number one. Remember, Ruth doesn't know who she is. He is. It's just a guy bossing her around. And the bossing her around says, You stay on my field and you go nowhere else. Why is he doing that? Because he knows if she goes to another field. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. So he gives command number two. Do not leave this field. Stay on my field and don't go leave for a bathroom break. Don't go leave anywhere for a, a water break. You're on my field. Don't leave it. Bosses around with the third command. Keep close to my young servant girls. These servant girls were gleaning as well. They're just next to them. So stay by them. Stay connected with them. I don't want you snatched. I don't want you taken away. Gives another command, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. He's giving her instructions on where to go. And he says, I have told the men not to touch you, which is about the fifth command. What is he saying? Boaz is in charge of all of his men out there. And he goes, I'm telling everybody, you do not touch this lady. You do not touch this lady. And another thing about telling all of his men, because when he says telling all of his men, is you don't let anybody else in this place touch this lady here. And if somebody tries to touch her, you know what you're going to do? You're going after them because she's going to be completely protected. Last command. When you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Ruth looks at Boaz and says, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have I found favor in your eyes? And do you know what Boaz says? I know what you've done. You've laid your life down so my relative, Naomi, will live. During lunchtime, he actually called Ruth next to him. And they shared lunch together. And then after they shared lunch together, they got up. And these are the words that Boaz continued to instruct to Ruth. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed her again. He instructed his young men, saying, Let their glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Let her glean among the sheaves, let her do what she wants, do not approach her, leave her alone. The next one, put, pull out some of the bundles from her and leave it under the glean. In other words, make it easy. Then the last one, don't rebuke her or make fun of her as she's working. She's in a man's world where she'd be eaten alive. And what does Boaz do? He comes and brings protection all the way around her. So when Ruth goes home, of course, Naomi says, how was your day? <laughs> and he says, you know that guy Boaz? Well, I met him. And this is what took place. And do you know what Naomi thought? He's our redeemer. He's our redeemer. He saved you in this field. And if he saves you, he can save, he can save me. 
He's your redeemer. When she told him the whole story, she's like, all right, when you go back, I want you, you know, to be clothed in your finest. And I want you to put perfume on. And, and I want you to bathe. I want you to be clean. It's like you're going to the field and you give those three things. She says, well, just, let, just wait. I'm, I'm not done. I want you to go at night, not in the fields. And I want you to go to the top where they are barley harvesting. Not harvesting, they are um, threshing the floor. And threshing the floor is where they pull all the grain out of the wheat, threshing the floor. And what they do is they do that in the evening. And in the evening they eat supper, then they go to bed, and that's where they sleep. Boaz was sleeping up there as the threshing the floor. What does she do? She goes up in the night, and she sees Boaz sleeping. So what does she do? She goes right down to the bottom of his feet. Going down to the bottom of his feet is a sense of, I respect you. It's a sense of, I shouldn't be here, but I am here. It's respect of, I honor you. I won't invade you. I will let you make decisions. It's a statement of saying, I am at your mercy. At midnight, Boaz wakes up and says, who's at my feet? What's, what, what are you? And then all of a sudden she sees Ruth. He probably smells the perfume that has taken place. And he says, what are you doing here, Ruth? And she says the words, redeem me. Save me. Save your relative, Naomi. As Boaz is thinking, he's got to be thinking, how can I save her? I am a man who fears God, and therefore I cannot take her as a concubine. Cannot take her as a concubine. I can protect her when she's a concubine, but I can't do it because I'm a man of God and I fear the Lord. The only way that she can be saved is if I literally marry her. Do you know what he said? I will save you. I will save you. But the next thing that he said is you know that there's another relative that's above me that can actually have the opportunity to marry you before I do. He said, in the morning what I'll do is I'll go put a council together and I will let this man have the opportunity to have you because he's a friend of me in regards to Ken. I'll let this man have you if he wants you because legally you're really not mine until he makes a decision. So he makes a whole council of people, 10 people all together and they, they come together just because he wants witnesses. I want witnesses to make this transaction that's gonna take place. And he uses the words, Naomi is selling her land that he is harvesting. He didn't ask Naomi. You can see it's a man cultured that I'm just, this is what's taking place. I'm going to take Naomi. I'm going to use her because Elimelech has this land. I'm going to take possession of the land. Not even ask Naomi because I'm going to use it to save her. Naomi is selling this land. Then he looks at the next of kin to the person and says, you can have it if you want. And what does the guy say? Of course I'll have it. I'll take it. I'll buy it. But then Boaz says, there's only one string attached. Is the name of Limelech we need to live on. And the only way that it will live on is if you have a relative from the name of Limelech. So you must marry Ruth. <laughs> and this guy's like, the land and marry a Moabite? Uh, no, I think I'll pass. Boaz knew it was going to take place. He knew he was going to pass. And I think that's why he set it up. Therefore, he went back to Ruth and asked her to marry him. And they ended up getting married. And after they got married, they had a son. What is that? It's called economic success. They had a son. You know, what is that? It's called, it's called protection. It's had a son. It's what Naomi or Ruth has been dreaming about for 10 years with her other husband. This is what she wanted. But you know what? They didn't do what was right in their own eyes. 
They did what was right in God's eyes and also Naomi's eyes. They took the son, they gave it to Naomi and said, this is not our son, this will be your son. And then Naomi ended up raising that son. What was that son's name? His name was Obed. And we find that in verse 17. They named him Obed. The story would be awesome if it ended there. But if you want that exceptional story, you will finish the line. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Well, who's David? Luke 2.11, for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior. Is what? Christ the Lord. This a massive amount of love that took place in this story in the center of Judges is literally pointing the ultimate sacrifice ever given, which was Jesus Christ. He's saying, this is my bloodline to when God is literally going to leave heaven. He's going to come to earth, and he's going to do the ultimate thing, not do what is right in his own eyes, but do what is right in your eyes to literally save you. Die on the cross, put an all sin on his shoulders, and go to the grave, and raise three days later so you can live. It's literally a dual story where we can look at it and we can find the salvation message in the center of the book of Judges with a daughter-in-law loving a mother-in-law, with a Boaz saving somebody that he doesn't necessarily have to save. But he saves them, and then saves them to the extreme that I'm just not going to save you and let you be a concubine. I'm not going to save you and let you be just somebody. I'm going to save you by taking you literally as my wife. Whole salvation message is moved there. Ruth was what? Moved by God. She is moved by God. Why was she moved by God? Because she saw the heart of Naomi, and when she saw the heart of Naomi, she said, your God is my God. Ruth was then committed to God. I will go the direction that I should be going, not the direction I want to go. Ruth then trusted God. She had to trust God. She knew that she was going to live a short life and she was going to die soon and could possibly be raped and was going to be used as a concubine and used as raw meat in this man's world where everybody did what was right in her own eyes. She trusted God after she was moved and committed by God. And then Ruth was protected by Boaz. What is that? It's a picture of Jesus. Somebody coming into life, the one that can save, ends up saving her. Then Ruth was married to Boaz. Another picture of Christ. There's a dual story that takes place within that story. But I want to look at in the context of the book of Judges first. When you look at the context of the book of Judges, everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and it's the most oppressed time for the nation of Israel. The salvation message falls right in the center of the book. If anybody or anything is going to save Judges, Israel, during that time, it's going to be Christ and Christ crucified. I mean, look at our notes. A picture of all those people that are deliverers and all those people that are deliverers. You know, what are they? They're an absolute mess. In fact, Judges is a picture of a whole bunch of deliverers of what it would look like if man actually tried to save people. The book of Ruth is a picture of what it looks like when God tries to save people. Because what he does, he has it pierced into your heart to give your life literally away. And as a result of doing that, what? The world gets saved. There's a dual story. But I was talking to Lisa in prayer, and she says, I love the dual story. 
Lisa's sitting right here. I love the dual story, but I, I said to her, do you know what I found out? It's not only a dual story, it's actually a, a triple story. There's three stories in it. And the reason why there's three stories in it is because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you actually fit into his story. Do you know where you're located? You're located in between the book of Judges and also the book, or, I'm sorry, the book of Jude and the book of Revelation. So you're actually sitting right in the middle of his story. Because when you accept Christ as your Savior, it is literally Christ in you. So we can ask the same question. What's the answer in the book of Judges? We see the gospel of the living Christ is the answer in the book of Judges. Now we can say in our lives, and I want to go back to that first question we asked, what can we do in a lost world, in a dark world? That's where we're at. You might not think so, but many, many do. We're in a dark world, a difficult world. We'll ask the question, what does this world need? And as a believer in Jesus Christ, what should I be doing? I mean, we wanted the world to change the judges as we're walking through it, and the judges weren't doing it. We want our world to change now. What do you need to do to make it change? Number three is to note, live out the gospel you've accepted. What does that mean? I'm going to go through these fast, and the reason why I'm going to go through them fast is because we're going to pack them for seven weeks. So don't worry, there's going to be a lot of detail on every single one of these as we look at the book of Ruth and also these topics. This is what it means. Be consumed by love, Christ's love. There's only one thing in this planet that's going to change the world. That's it. It's Christ's love. The world does not see it if it is not in you. If it is not in you and it is not proclaimed, the world will not see it and nothing will change. It is the only answer. The temperature of the church is a temperature on how much they love God. Because if they love God, what's it going to do? It's going to come out of their life. It's going to come out of their life. And the world will see him through our lives if it is coming out. Letter B, be fixed on commitment. It's two battles. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Do you know what that is? That's called natural. <laughs> if I just relax, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what is right in my own life. But what about commitment? What about commitment to God? I'm not going to do what's right in my own life. I'm going to do what's right in God's life. Do you know what's going to happen? Everybody around you is going to be touched, loved, and saved. That's what takes place. If you don't do what is right in your own eyes, you do what is right in God's eyes, it will change the world around you. That's God's mission to change the world. And that is our perspective inside of it. That is our assignment inside of it. The next one would be anchor into purpose. We all float around. We float around with the news. We float around with the wind. We, 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 we go wherever the government takes us. We go wherever our emotions take us. We go wherever we're at. But when you're anchoring into purpose, you go where he's at. You anchor into what God's doing, not what you're doing. You're anchored into what God believes, not what you believe. You're anchored into what God is accomplishing, not what you want to accomplish as a person. Defining a purpose, that's how it's going to change the world. Relax in sovereignty. We live in a world full of stress. And Christians are getting consumed inside of the stress. We have the Bible and we know the end of the story. The end of the story, before the end of the story, do you know what takes place? Things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. At the end of the story, Christ wins. But before the story ends, everything gets worse. Well, what does that mean? That means we are going to go through it a lot worse than we're doing right now. We're going to go through it a lot worse than we're doing right now. But we know that because the Bible says that. So what does he say? I'm sovereign. 
I'm in control. I need my church to relax, not be consumed with fear and not be driven by a situation, but relax that I am sovereign and that you are loved and will be taken care of. That's what's going to change the world. The whole world will take light upon the people that are relaxed when the whole world starts to fall down. Focus on dependency. We're all a dependent people. We're dependent on air. We're dependent on clothing. We're dependent on money. We're dependent on food. We're dependent on water. The ultimate thing that we are supposed to be is dependent on God. You know, many people say, you know, I don't want God because I'm not going to be dependent on anything. It's like, you're dependent on everything already. You might as well just choose God and add him to your list. Because we are a dependent people. But the strength of an individual is the, is, is the power of an individual is a, in accordance to the power of what they are dependent to. In other words, if you're dependent on money, money is good as long as it's powerful. But when it's not anymore, you lose it all and you go bankrupt. The strength of us is the power of what we are dependent on. God's all-powerful. Be dependent on him. Attached to hope. Everybody in our world desires it to be better. And even the concepts of watching the majority of Americans, they're making decisions because they want things better. They want things better. According to the Bible, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. We will just continue to do what is right in our own eyes more and more and more and more. But one day, guess what's going to happen? The bride is going to get connected with his bridegroom. The bride, which is the church, is going to get connected with his bridegroom. Hang on to that hope. As the world gets crazy, hang on to that hope. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, God, for the power of the gospel. God, we see it lived out 1,500 years before it ever even took place. In the book, in the, the, the behavior of Naomi, in the behavior of Ruth, and in the behavior of Boaz. God, as we were working through this book, I, say, I ask that you just challenge us, God, to have an understanding of the power they had and embrace you to get it. God, it points directly to the gospel, and we've seen it in its entirety. And I just pray, God, that we'll hold on to it in its brutality, God that we will not let it go. We will embrace it, we'll swallow it, we'll take it, and it will be the thing that drives us, moves us, and sends us in this dark world. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace and being willing to marry us. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.